Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The pandemic is not stopping Alaska Native people from celebrating their cultures, languages, and ways of life. And that's just what elders and young people from across Alaska did in a COVID-19 safe way this fall. They spent four days virtually taking part in the 2021 First Alaskans Institute's Elders and Youth Conference. After nearly two years of dealing with pandemic life, the time was used to connect. We'll hear highlights about how they engaged and celebrated what they call Native New Year. We'll also hear about a federal government initiative on Indian boarding schools. An Alaska Native boarding school survivor shares his personal story advocating for truth and healing. Next on Alaska's Native Voice. This is Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Elders and young people from across Alaska celebrated their cultural knowledge and ways of life connecting together through a virtual space this fall. They took time to hear what's going on in each other's lives and communities during the 2021 First Alaskans Institute's Elders and Youth Conference. This was the second year in a row the gathering was online due to COVID-19 health and safety concerns. Elders shared how to make traditional medicines, harvesting, and a number of other cultural practices. And Alaska Native youth advocated for the LGBTQ community. Elders and young people say now, more than ever, is the time to uplift each other and amplify Native voices and communities. IU Kusatuk with First Alaskans Institute tells us more. IU I'm IU I come from Umalasik, also known as Unaklit. I currently serve as Vice President for First Alaskans Institute. I live, work, and raise my children on Gana'ina lands in the Gayakak, also known as Gingrich. Thank you for joining us today here on Alaska's Native Voice. So why don't you start us off and tell us why it's important that Alaska Native elders and young people connect? You know, our elders and our youth have always had a very special place in our communities because we recognize that they are closest to our ancestors. The transference of knowledge between elders and youth, that knowledge has been passed down intact from the very beginning of our creation stories. And so creating space for our elders and our youth to spend time with each other, share energy, share knowledge, share ideas is really critical. And how has the pandemic impacted that kind of connection? Normally in non-pandemic, there's a lot of in-person gathering and sharing and learning from one another, but there's also just something about being together, being community, being in the same space in the same um, area. So how has the pandemic impacted that? Yeah, gosh, we really do miss being in person. You know, when Elders and Youth is in person, we have the the whole area set up in round tables, and we've got a good mix of Elders and Youth from all different regions kind of mixed up around the tables, around the whole room. And, you know, you can feel the energy in the room when we're having conversation with each other, when there's a powerful plenary presentation that's happening, or during one of our Elder and Youth keynotes. You can feel the energy in the space. And, you know, as a staff person for First Alaskans, our community always loves us up for hosting the conference. And so we'd get things like drive-by dry fish. (laughs) An elder would come and just drop off dry fish on our staff table, just seeing that we're running around and really trying to make it a good experience for everyone. And so we super miss that for sure. But what's most important always is protecting our people. And so while it was a difficult decision to host our Elders and Youth Conference virtually for the second year, it really was, we felt, important to do our part in order to protect our communities and protect our people. The the upside of hosting it virtually is that it then actually makes it accessible to folks who might not have been able to travel in either to Anchorage or to Fairbanks to attend in person. And, you know, whether 
that's cost related or time related or just distance related, you know, it could be any number of those things. It allows people from across the state, across the nation, and even across the world, we've had international participants access getting to hear from our incredible elders and youth and getting to see what is so rare to see in media, and that is people who absolutely love and value us lifting us up and our knowledge and centering the beauty of Alaska Native peoples and the diversity of our peoples. And so it does make it more accessible. And I would say it also has another um, added bonus. This whole pandemic, I think, has added a bonus in that we now have the honor of getting to kind of be in people's homes around their, you know, dinner tables, in their home offices, in their living rooms. And I know for me, you know, I have four children and that means that when I'm in my Zoom calls or I'm in a workshop, that my children who are in my space are also getting to hear and experience these things. And so it really has been, I think, while, of course, we definitely prefer being in person, it also has come with quite a few blessings. And something else that I appreciate is that it's made it more accessible to um, school districts to be able to access Alaska Native knowledge and perspectives on our world in ways that they are certainly not reflected in the curriculum. And that's definitely seen throughout the Elders and Youth Conference with a focus on language, history, culture, and Alaska Native way of life. And how was the conference centered around this year? What was the theme? Oh, gosh, our theme, I might get emotional just talking about it. it our theme was presented in the EAC language this year which, as you may know, the last living fluent speaker of EAC passed quite a few years ago at this point, and it was really a devastating time to realize that. And so we knew when EAC was chosen to be the theme language for this year that it was going to be something really special, and it, it really was. We worked with the EAC language uh, panel to come up with our theme. We shared with them the thinking of our statewide elders and youth council and our staff at First Alaskans about, you know, some ideas of what the theme might be related to this time that we're living through. And rather than a process that we followed in the past, where we kind of settled on a theme and then translated it into our indigenous language, we just presented kind of all of these ideas of, you know, what it might be. And then working with our EAC language speakers and language warriors and language bearers, they actually created the theme from EAC that we then had to translate into English. And so our theme this year was it means side by side, moving in the same direction, we go, the people go by canoe. And that in and of itself was a, a pretty cool way of indigenizing, well, both decolonizing and indigenizing our process for selecting the scene. And I think that that really showed throughout the conference. There were so many different access points for people to connect with the theme. One of my favorite moments of the entire conference was Monday morning. We invited Jake and Garrett Swanson into our space to help teach our conference participants how to pronounce the theme. And in doing so, they asked everyone who was on the Zoom right at that moment, which was about 200 of us, uh, which doesn't include, of course, all of the people who are watching through live stream or televised, and also um, doesn't include that many of those individual Zoom members were entire classrooms of students 
and teachers. Um, so they asked the nearly 200 participants to come off mute and practice out loud alongside them. And I just had this moment, multiple moments during that, that part of our, our flow when I just got so incredibly choked up and the tears just started flowing, just realizing that, you know, there were hundreds of people across our state connected in speaking out loud this language that we had received such devastating news about just a few years ago. And it really, to me, just demonstrated that our peoples always find a way and the knowledge is within us and it's just waiting to be woken up and loved and uplifted again. And I, I absolutely felt it in that moment. We're talking about how elders and young people in Alaska are connecting with one another during the pandemic, including on a virtual space. Let's hear from Ruth Booth, who was a 2021 elder keynote at the Elders and Youth Conference. The 84-year-old mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother was born in British Columbia, later moved to Alaska after her arranged marriage with the late Mel Booth. That lasted 53 years. She's known as everyone's grandmother. Hello, my name is Ruth Tate Booth. I've been here in Metlakatla for 64 years. I come from Port Simpson, BC. The grandmothers are the ones that teach us everything. And most of all, she would say, Who's gonna feed you this winter if you don't get up and get the seaweed now? The tide's not gonna wait for you. And it's the same thing with uh, fish. You get tired because you're cleaning it, preparing for next day. And uh, it's always the grandmothers, the grandmothers and aunties that, that you can't be lazy around them because they, they know how hard it is in the wintertime to gather food. And we do have salted, salted uh, seal meat. And most of the time it was uh, sea lion that we smoke. And uh, the Indian word for that is chaomti. Take it out and soak it again. Better than jerky. But you don't taste the seal or sea lime in it. And then we go on to the deer. We save everything from the deer. Then uh, boil the bones down and, and uh, use that for broth. And any, we put it aside and uh, half and half. Then we give the elders the juice of that and the marrow. They like to pound the bones themselves. So that's how we did it with just a few potatoes, onions, and celery. Carrots, it wasn't celery, it was carrots. And that's how we, and now if there's any left over, I found out from my granddaughters, you could save it. You put it in a clean jar and then you boil it for 20 minutes. And then you have that soup for any time. And since I didn't get any, well, my health got me down. So I did a uh, little bit of fish. Most was given to me by my granddaughters and daughter. And uh, I was able to save some, but I have frozen one, which I'm going to take out and start charring them. Plain jar, no salt. So I hope I can get enough of that. But it doesn't matter as long as I have fish and rice. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of seaweed sprinkled on top of rice. Because uh, low sodium, I have to be on low sodium. And uh, during the fall time or early spring, We'd uh, gather olikins, 
this one year we went up in 1950. My mom was pregnant with my younger sister at that time. And uh, she went down and they had a little hut for her. And uh, I saw through cleaning and cooking and I went down and made her go home because it was cold for her and the baby. And uh, she taught me how to pick them out. The, the male, the male ulican has no teeth. And that's called kawa. And the female have two teeth in front of their jaws and that's called lulatna. That's what you make grease from. And so you're, you're Never have time out when you're putting grease up because you have to go down the beach and offload the, the punts or big, big, I forgot what they call it, Columbia boats. It's a regular, it's a regular gill netter. The top part's all cut off, so this is where you haul all the oligans in. And when they go up by the ice there, there's ice, they put two big uh, logs that, that would hold the, the net. And they have a L-shaped tree. I kind of think it's a cedar. They use that to, to uh, squeeze the uh, oligans into the boat. And the, and then they pull the one end, the narrow end, and they keep doing that till it's empty. And then they tow it to shore and that's where, but we didn't know at that time that we should have waited for high tide. It was my son who went over to Canada and he was having a hard time because it's a big slat that, that carry 200 pounds of oligans in it. He kept slipping and sliding in that soft mud and, he had a sore knee at that time. Then when they made his first trip up and the guy saw how he was hurting, so he just was up there and uh, did his part. And when they were all through, he said, why don't you guys wait till high tide and offload? So I do that. <laughs> we call him a smart Yankee. <laughs> So that was his experience because his dad wanted to show him how to, how I lived when I was growing up. And it was, it was hard work, but the winter time it paid off because you have, and then they'd have feasts and we'd uh, go ahead and portion some off and then still keep some for the month of March, because that's when we usually run out. And so it, it's a wonderful thing. When I grew up with my family, we had to move every three, let's see, March. We'd be in the Nass River gathering the Olicans, because the place we live in is a red bluff. So it's a Simshan camp, and the rest were all Mass River. So it was really interesting to learn. And the boat would come over from Ketchikan, was called the Lincoln. It was run by Robert Ridley. And after that's Mel's uncle. And uh, all these years he thought it was the Lincoln Grease. He didn't know it came from Mass River. <laughs> so they'd get theirs. It was very cheap at the time. It was like five dollars a can for the five five gallon. And the hooligans were very, very cheap. The ones that you, you sun dry. And uh, they use cedar bark and some twine to hold it together because they're like six feet apart. You know, so that's how long the sticks were. And they had to be out in the big rack that's out there like your saint or your gillnet rack that you put on and that's what it looked like and there's a middle and you keep 
And then before they smoke it too, that's what they did. They leave it in the rain for about three days and kind of air dry it a little bit so it was easy. The men did that work. They, at that time we had tall smoke houses and they used ladders. And uh, we don't do that part, the men do that. But when we have time, we, we cook and bake as much as we can because it's a little wood stove. And uh, most of the time we have it outside that we call uh, your baking powder bread, what we call Indian bread. But the Indian bread has grease in it, grease and water, baking powder and salt and flour. And that's what we put in the, the cast iron, your largest cast iron frying pan. And, and put it around the fire, anything that's round, and we'd have the fire going, and and we have uh, rocks, you know, all around there, so it keeps the heat. And then we keep turning the handle on the frying pan, and uh, until it's golden brown, and we flip it off. Don't have to lard it because on the other side. It was ready to go and we keep doing that until it's all done and we can't stop at one we have to keep going until see even the neighbors have it too that's how they shared food back then but uh when we do fry bread we do it outside with the uh, uh, same way how we bake that tion they call it tion and that's very interesting. But Fion is the same as that uh, bread that we made, but you make it thinner. Or you, no, I just got through doing that one. But uh, the yeast bread, we had to do that big pans full in the house. If it's raining, we do that in the house on the wood stove. We start early in the morning keep going until we get lunch ready. And when lunch was done, then we start in on the supper time. And it's all the foods that they put up there that we eat. It's all the first time was uh, the fried olekins and uh, potatoes was most of the time it was rice. And uh, like I said, it's, it's something, but it's a treat when somebody comes up there with a boatload of uh, herring eggs on branches or the other, uh, like kelp. So that, that was good. And that was our treat and we treat them with food, trade them with food, mostly olican grease and smoked olicans so that that's how we did our our food gathering we share a lot and uh, it seemed like we start in at well the men that are fishing start in at four o'clock everything seemed like we just get to bed and we had to get up again and cook but most of the time they just drink their coffee and take the on Indian bread and that kept them going until they're very hungry when they come in with the load. So I'm glad they're all doing what Malcolm said, wait till high tide. <laughs> <laughs> that was Elder Ruth Booth sharing about her life and how she harvests and processes native foods. You're listening to Alaska's Native Voice.
Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The COVID-19 pandemic has not stopped elders and young people in Alaska from taking time to connect and learn from one another. With the help of technology, they took part in a virtual platform this fall at the First Alaskans Institute's annual gathering, now in its 38th year, the statewide Elders and Youth Conference. We're shining a light on elders and young people. IU Kusatuk with First Alaskans Institute reflects on the special space keynotes are given each year. Our elder and our youth keynotes are always such a highlight. Um, you know, we really give them free reign. They use the platform to speak to the theme and to speak to what's on their heart. Their names come to us from um, recommendations from our statewide Elders and Youth Council and our First Alaskan Institute staff. And so these are individuals who really are known within our community for their advocacy, for their voice, for their message. And so this year we got to hear from Ruth Booth and then just it was such a precious experience to, to have her pre-recorded keynote in her it looked like her kitchen so we, it was like we got to sit around the kitchen table with her and you know just listen to some of her stories as well as you know sharing some tips and tricks about harvesting and processing our foods which was really special and then our youth keynote getting to hear from Oliver Tyrell and his advocacy around uplifting and supporting our LGBTQIA to us plus family and the ways that we as a community can better support our family and be good relatives in ways that help to protect them, but also help them to live the full lives, you know, that they're intended to live and be able to contribute their gifts to our community in the way that each of us are called to do. And so both of our keynotes were incredibly powerful and uh, provided so much opportunity for reflection as well as connection. Let's hear from youth keynote Oliver Tyrell, a 15-year-old female to transgender male who shared his story and advocacy. I'm Oliver Tyrell and I want to acknowledge the traditional lands of the Dena'ina people. I'm a guest on your land right now and I've lived on your land for most of my life. My Yupik name is Iki Download. I'm an FTM transgender male, which means I was born a female, but now my gender identity is male. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Yupik and Nubiak, born in Fairbanks. My grandparents are the late Libby Miller of Fairbanks, Alaska, John and Leslie Neely of Texas, Carla and Kurt Edenshaw of Heidelberg, Alaska, and Laurel and Rick Tyrell of Central Alaska. I'm a proud second year sophomore enrolled at Manage High School. When I look into the mirror, my heart swells with pride as I see my ancestors gazing back at me. Through my eyes, they see. Through my breath, they live. In that very same mirror, I also see a young trans man working to affirm my identity in a westernized world and in our communities. In my eyes is a reflection of the many pride and courage of trans people everywhere. We are resilient. Though too many are fighting through unspeakable pain, too many are fighting to survive, and many aren't surviving at all. These are not competing identities within me. They are one and the same growing in the same direction, deserving of my pride and my people's respect. We, the LGBTQ 2S plus community, live within the Native community. We always have. The same pride I know each of you feel in your culture, your heritage, and your family, I feel every day in the deepest chambers of my heart. Side by side, in the same direction, the people go by canoe. It's an aspirational theme, more relevant now than ever. From our shared struggles to keep rich, the richness of our cultures and languages alive against all the odds, to, to our collective fight against injustice, regardless of race, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, tribal nation, or community, we are in the same canoe. And it's our responsibility to ensure that despite our differences, we're always rowing with each other, for each other, side by side, in the same direction. It's more than a teaching and a saying. It's my prayer for this community of ours. It's my hope. It's what is possible if we do what is needed to learn about one another, respect each other, and commit to accept, include, and empower all people, especially when it's hard. Like many of you, I've been molded by my community and life experiences. However, also like many of you, I've also been unfortunately affected by the racism and discrimination 
I've experienced by living my truth. Shortly after I was born, my father, Jake Tyrell, died. My mother, Emily, my aunt, Holly, and I all moved to Anchorage. Every summer, I would still go see my grand, my dad's parents in rural Alaska to maintain the connection with him in my life. And I will always carry a connection with him. When I was at home during, with my mom during the winters, I refused to wear dresses. I gave all my Build-A-Bear toy boy names. I begged my mom to give me an awesome Transformer birthday themed party. I was also obsessed with Justin Bieber and how badly I wanted his haircut. And by the way, I got that, trans, that awesome Transformer birthday party. I also had the Justin Bieber haircut, but sadly it just wasn't right for me. When I was at home with my mom, I'm sorry. <laughs> Growing up, I learned that I, I knew that I was not like other little kids. Everywhere I turned, I would hear negative comments about the LGBTQ2S plus community. I wasn't even out yet. As early as preschool, I heard hateful and derogatory words used to talk about the LGBTQ2S plus people. Though I didn't fully grasp the hate that I was facing back then, I would soon come to understand the unavoidable cost and struggle for people like me who simply wanted to live their truth. For many, the realities of this are far more troubling and extreme. They face relentless physical, emotion, emotional, and psychological abuse, not just from strangers on the street or kids at school, but from their own parents and grandparents, their siblings or aunties or uncles in their own home where they should feel the safest, they are under attack. The LGBTQ2S plus is a community that is targeted for just being who they are. Simply to put it, it isn't right. No one should have to live in fear for living their truth, especially in our native communities who know better than most what it means to be stripped of our true voices and violently denied the right to embrace our true full selves. We lose so many souls month after month, year after year, some to violence, some to substance abuse and self-medication and some to their own hand when they see no way out. Amazing people, our people, gone far too soon and for no good reason. We can do better than this for ourselves and for each other. Every corner of our community deserves to be defended and affirmed. We're all in this canoe together. We should, gathering, we should be gathering to support our youth, accept our youth, and respect our youth. When we do that, we are saving even more of our people and our cultures. When I was about 10 years old, a really big thing happened to me, something that helped me to understand my thoughts and feelings. My older cousin told me he was transgender. He explained to me how he felt in his body and what exactly transgender meant. During that talk, I finally came to realize that there were people like me in this world. People that never felt at home or connected with their bodies. I remember thinking, I finally found an explanation for how I feel. I told my mom and she told me it was probably best to wait to come out. At that time, I was upset and confused, but now I'm grateful because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't have learned all the valuable lessons that I did on my journey. I had no other choice but to keep on going to school and being a kid, but that's when I decided to be more confident, more me. I was going to the Alaska Native Cultural Charter School at the time. It was an inclusive space and supportive place where I was surrounded by my aunts and uncles. When I was there, I was fully accepted for the clothes I wore and the way I expressed myself and who I was. This helped me more than anything. It really helped shape me into the person I am today. I was taught to be strong for my people there. I was taught my language and I was taught to always fight for what I believed in. The Alaska Native Cultural Charter School was the best school and family I could ever ask for. I'm thankful for all the opportunities I was given there and all the time I spent there. While I was at, while I was at the Alaska Native Cultural Charter School, I learned that I too was also a teacher. I have my own story that others can learn from. We all have a story. This is what I'm doing today, sharing it. Years later, my mom remarried my stepdad, Devin Edenshaw, and we all moved to Juneau. I have to say that that was the worst year and a half of my life. At the time, I wasn't even out of the closet. I was just a kid with short hair that liked to dress in boy clothes. But when I was in seventh grade, I was getting told that my, by my classmates that I would get beat up for being myself. I was told that I needed to pick a gender. I was getting told that I was disgusting. I didn't even know how to stand up for myself and all this took a bigger toll on my mental health than anybody could even imagine. There were also times where I felt like if my dad were alive, he would be disappointed. I never had a chance to know my dad and what he would think of me. I only knew him through stories and that also took a big toll on my mental health. I still really do struggle with it to this day. 
During my time in Juneau, I felt so alone. I knew that there were others like me, but I didn't really know how to find them. When I finally did, it helped more than I could even explain. Those people still help me today in coping with the discrimination I face on a day-to-day -day basis. When I finally came out as transgender, I was a freshman in high school at the ripe age of 14. There was family members who without hesitation jumped to support me. There were also family members to this day who said that they will not support me and never call me by my preferred name or pronouns. They told me when I, I'll always be Anya. I was heartbroken because in my mind, I never was Anya. I was never their baby girl. It was like Juno all over again, but worse, because these people who I had known my entire life, who were supposed to support me and love me unconditionally, don't accept me or my journey. These kind of thoughts and this behavior from people who are supposed to care for you is upsetting, even traumatizing for youth, who already feel lonely and scared. When you're treated this way, you feel disrespected. You feel like you are nothing to them. I felt like I wasn't worth their love if I lived my truth, and I'd only be worth it if I lived theirs. I felt like I wouldn't be enough if I was Oliver, like I'll never make them proud. When people actually called me by my preferred name, I was ecstatic. It was the best feeling ever. I felt like I was loved and heard. It honestly really did save my life. When you're called something you're not, it gets tiring to keep hearing people tell you that you're less than for something you can't even control. When more and more people call me by my name, I became stronger and I became more passionate about everything. It also helped me to see that I am my people's next generation. I have a story and I could share it to help people around me. This is what I am doing in front of you. That was Oliver Tyrell, the 2021 Youth Keynote Speaker at the First Alaskans Institute's Elders and Youth Conference. Ayukusatuk, Vice President of First Alaskans Institute, sees the inspiration from elders and youth year-round, even after the closing of the 2021 gathering. What I wish for has, has already come back in some ways in both the voices of our elders and our youth. I received a message from a very precious Inigal elder from Utkiavik um, on the North Slope. And they sent a message of encouragement and affirmation, really just saying how much it meant to them to be able to participate in this conference as an elder and to feel like it was um, something that they wished for their whole life, to feel seen and valued and loved and to be in a space filled with our people celebrating who we are and just how special and healing that was for them. And then um, hearing from youth who shared, you know, how proud they were to be Native and how inspired they were to learn their language or to learn weaving or to learn their singing and dancing or, you know, to learn carving or any, any of the ways that we express who we are. You know, we received so many messages from our community just really appreciating that there was a space that was for us and by us that really uplifts who we are and celebrates it. So that's, that's what I hope is that the ripple effects continue to move across Alaska. You know, Alaska is and always has been and always will be a Native place. Where it falls short is in recognizing that. And I feel like we're living in a time right now where people are coming to see that part of, an important part of what makes Alaska special is its Indigenous peoples. And that there's so much knowledge and beauty that can't be captured anywhere else. That's encoded in our languages. That's encoded in our songs and our dances and our ceremonies. It's like an untapped, vast knowledge bank of this place that doesn't exist anywhere else. And it feels like we're in a time of kind of awakening, collective awakening, to how important that is, not only to Native people, but to all Alaskans. I'll just leave you with the words of one of our elders who spoke during our warming of the hands on Sunday, the beginning of our conference. Um, actually, I'll share a couple of words that came from a couple of them because we, we got to hear from multiple elders. 
Today we are of one thought, one mind, in love of our people, our lands and waters, and our ways of life. Mekechwat, which is Inibak, means there are no barriers to what we need to do. From the mountaintop to the salty water, let's live the love we want our ancestors to feel. The U.S. government has finally acknowledged the generational trauma and impact of federal Indian boarding school policies. The Department of the Interior has begun tribal consultations of Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland's Indian Boarding School Initiative, which will include a detailed report of historical records, an emphasis on ceremonies or possible burial sites, and a comprehensive review to prepare for future action. Secretary Holland, the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary, updated tribal leaders about her initiative at the 2021 National Congress of American Indians annual convention held virtually this fall. Our communities have carried and continue to carry the traumas of our aunts and uncles, grandparents and relatives who were taken from us, who lost a part of their culture, and many who may not have made it home. But now we have the attention of the entire country. This attention has not been without trauma. It's not easy to share our stories and read the stories of our relatives in major news outlets. I wish we didn't have to go through this. I wish that our children were never taken away in the first place. However, like our ancestors, we know that the sacrifices we make today are not just for ourselves. They are for the generations who will come after us. The Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative that I launched at the NCAI conference in June will begin the long healing process that our country must address in order to build a future that we can all be proud to embrace. Tribal consultations are at the core of this long and painful process to address the intergenerational trauma of Indian boarding schools and to shed light on the truth in a way that honors those who have lost and those that continue to suffer. Two weeks ago, Interior announced it would begin tribal consultations as the next step of the Federal India Boarding School Initiative. The feedback we get from these consultations will lay the foundation for the department's report on this effort and for future site work to protect potential burial sites and other sensitive information. As we speak, agency staff are compiling decades of files and records to facilitate a proper review, to organize documents, identify available and missing information, and ensure that record systems are standardized. The department is also building a framework for how it will partner with outside organizations to guide the next steps of review. My heart breaks each time I read a new account or hear a new story about how our children suffer. This type of heartbreak can take a toll on the body and the mind. Our communities will need more support as we go through this collective trauma together. Interior is working with the Indian Health Service to develop culturally appropriate support resources for those who feel the weight of trauma resulting from the boarding school initiative. We are here for all of you and your communities as we go through this painful process. More generally, I want you to know that you will always have an ally in me. My team and I are committed to working with all of you so that we can build a better future for our children and our children's children. Dating back to the 1800s through the 1960s, an unknown number of Native children in the U.S. were forcibly taken away from their families and communities and placed in federally operated and church-run schools, which destroyed their culture, language, and way of life. Students also died at these schools. Many former students and family members have felt the impacts of the physical, sexual, cultural, spiritual abuse and neglect experienced at boarding school. Alaska Native boarding school survivor and advocate Jim LaBelle was sent to boarding school at age eight and attended two schools for 10 years where he experienced trauma. He describes the federal acknowledgement and initiative as finally 
a godsend. There's been so many of us that have been uh, advocating for some sort of uh, recognition of our of the boarding school era and uh, also been fighting for some sort of truth and reconciliation and just ability to to have the different players come to the table and participate in in describing their involvement. And what do you hope does happen um, with this federal initiative? It has to come in the form of uh, just explaining to you all of the various social problems in Indian country and especially in Alaska Native country. Alaska Natives have maybe the has a suicide rate of three or four times the national average. Um, in the prison system in Alaska, about 40% of all of the inmates in the uh, criminal justice system are Alaska Natives, when we make up only 20% of the state's population. In the foster care system, over 60% of all the children in the state's foster care program are Alaska Native children. And this is to say um, these are just symptoms of the trauma, much of which was, can be attributed to uh, boarding school. Uh, there was over 30-some boarding schools that Alaska Native children were sent to both inside and outside of Alaska. And sometimes we see there's a lot of stigma and people not wanting to share or talk about what they experienced in boarding school. How have you seen it help, you know, yourself and others you've talked to in Alaska and sharing, you know, past traumas that happened? At first, I, I failed to recognize or even would want to entertain that there's something that I experienced personally that made me the person who I was. I had lots of anger. Um, I also had lots of uh, shame. These are the kind of things that, um, by nature, we try to keep to ourselves. And I was becoming so screwed up as a as a father, as a husband, that there was a lot of people, including my wife, who encouraged me to go seek uh, treatment. I went to a number numerous talking circles and learned how to um, understand that these are not things that were of my own making, but things that happened to me. But the ultimate goal, um, Antonio, was forgiveness. Not only forgiving your oppressors, but to forgive yourself for having to carry that around with you all those years and then kind of unleash it on, on your own family. Uh, I've had to make some apologies to them for my own behavior. A lot of this is intergenerational. And so we pass down um, our own traumas to our own uh, descendants, to our children and grandchildren who pass it, who pass it on to theirs. And um, we seem to have the same cycle. It has a lot to do with uh, uh, breaking the cycle, uh, coming to terms with what happened to us, and yet finding ways that we can uh, come together as uh, families and community uh, in a way that uh, helps us heal from that, to acknowledge it and to kind of move forward. The Interior Department's report is intended to help lay the foundation for future work, including how to handle sensitive information, potential repatriation of human remains, management of sites of former boarding schools, and other issues. A final report is due to the Secretary by April 2022. You've been listening to Alaska's Native Voice. Thank you for joining us. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
AFN, Alaska's Native Voice, is produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez. Broadcast support provided by the Siri Foundation, Cook Inlet Lending Center, South Central Foundation, Chalista Corporation, Manilak Association, Cook Inlet Tribal Council, and Rasmussen Foundation. This is a production of KNBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.